You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. I want to be a producer with a hit show on Broadway. I want to be a producer. Hello, everybody. This is Ken Davenport. Welcome back to the Producer's Perspective podcast, episode number five. Uh, thanks to everyone for listening and for your emails. Keep them coming, especially if you want to hear from specific folks or certain types of professions in our industry. Let me know and we will make it happen. And today is actually an example of that. I've had so many requests from all of you to speak to advertising and marketing experts. And today, well, today I'm sitting right across the table from the authority on the subject of advertising and marketing Broadway shows. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. I'm very fortunate to be picking the brain of Drew Hodges, the founder of one of the industry's leading advertising agencies, Spotco. Welcome, Drew. Thank you very much. To list Spotco and Drew's clients would take about 354 podcasts, so I'll just name a few. Uh, Going back to the beginnings, which we'll talk about, Chicago and Rent, Kinky Boots, Gentleman's Guide, Last Ship, so on, so on, so on. It's really just boring to list them all. So instead, I'll give you this statistic to give you an idea of the type of guy in the company we're talking about. Uh, Spotco has originated the art for 10 of the last 20 best musicals in the past 20 years, including every winner since 2008. The last seven in a row for best musical. It's amazing. Amazing. So that's my first question, Drew. You and your company really define how Broadway looks and communicates to the rest of the world. How did you end up in the position that you are now? Well, my history was I was doing entertainment design. So I did records, I did movies, I did cable channels. Back when we were inventing cable channels, like I worked on the lawns of Comedy Central and The Daily Show, and I did albums for Aerosmith and Lisa Loeb. And so that's what I did, was I did entertainment um, 
And I did some film stuff, oddly enough. Um, and I had a small design studio. There were five of us. And Geffen hired David, hired us to do Rent. That was the first thing that we did. Um, I understand he did it because he wanted to sell albums in the front of the record store where rock and roll albums were stacked and not the back of the record store where show tune albums were stacked. I have literally heard that quote. Uh, I actually just confirmed this recently that, in fact, David had no connection to the show other than the album. So we were really brought in to design the record, but we had a strong marketing background, and I went and saw the show and met with the producers, Jeffrey and Kevin, Jeffrey Seller and Kevin McCollum, and gave them sort of my point of view as to how I would do it. And it just turned out to really fit with how they thought they were going to do the show. And really, uh, I wrote the copy myself. I did the graphics myself. You know, the easiest thing to market is to yourself. Most of the time, none of us get to market to ourselves. Um, but at the very beginning, I was very lucky that the first project I worked on, I was really using myself as the audience member. And I had a real point of view about what I called the lapsed Catholics of Broadway, which was myself, people that had gone to Broadway for a very long time and really enjoyed Broadway. But I always felt like the materials that were put out there didn't connect to me. They didn't look like other stuff in other entertainment worlds that I knew. And so I never felt like they were an invitation to me. So really what we did with Rent and what we've done for a long time was we looked at all the kinds of people that we were working with in other entertainment vehicles, film, records, music videos, and brought those artists to bear on Broadway. And that gave a much more contemporary flavor to the work that we did. Were you a theater fan before all yeah, of this? I was, I was. I grew up in um, Hyde Park, Rhinebeck area, and took the train down. I was the kid who would... Sun, Monday morning, get the arts and leisure in the in the high school library, and go through the concerts and the shows, and plan the trips, and buy the tickets, and go with my friends to the city. A little more rock and roll than Broadway, but I was still a Broadway fan. And then I went to art school here in the city at School of Visual Arts, so I had been here for four years. Well, by the time I did this work, I had been here for seven years by the time I did Brent. So I had actor friends. I was very aware of shows and would go regularly. I wasn't an avid, but I would... And actually, that was, a, that was an asset. I didn't go all the time. I didn't know everything there was to know. I was really a true consumer. So I had the sense of what it was like for me to look at these ads and to choose to buy a ticket and the problems that I had... Um, and that was just a great asset. It's really great when you don't know what you don't know. So, uh, obviously, that rent was how many years ago now? We're getting close to 20 years ago now. Yeah, absolutely, or 20 years. Um, obviously, the world has changed a lot in 20 years. Certainly, Broadway has changed a lot. Uh, what do you think has changed the most about the advertising and marketing over the last 20 years? Well, certainly media is more expensive. We've moved from a print world to a digital an outdoor, digital broadcast and outdoor world. Um, so I would say that you have to be much more aware now of things moving than just, and I still find that everybody, including me, can fall into the trap of going, what's the poster, what's the poster? It's not really about the poster that much. It certainly is about the brand, just as it was then. And I always thought it's really about the personality that you, that you put out there, that I'm, I'm a big fan of this idea of the emotional promise, that you're, you're giving an emotional promise to a buyer. You're saying, I promise you, if you buy a ticket to this, the evening will feel like this. 
Not what's going to happen, not who's in it, not what the plot points are, but what I'm going to leave you with. And so the more emotional you can make the work, the more powerfully effective it is. So that's the same now as it was then. But I would say that, uh, yeah, things move more. And because there are so many more pieces, right? You used to do a full page ad in the New York Times and that would be your campaign. Now that you make so many elements, it's just that much stronger a concern that they go together. It's very easy to have your ads sort of want, you know, your digital ads be a little different than your print ads, be a little different than your TV. And it's very easy to have your campaign fracture. So I would say with more executional elements at this point, you have to just be that much more aware of what your strategy is and stay with it because it's really easy to wander. Whereas in the old days, producers would just get a whim to run a headline this week different than last week. And now that's obviously, it's not so easy to just be, you know, kind of winging it and, you know, because all of it needs to go together. So is that the emotional promise, which I, I love that concept when you're originally coming up with the idea for art or when, with rent or whatever, is that, what is your process? How do, how do you start from with a blank page or a blank sheet to where are we going to go with this art? I have this passion that this happened four or five years ago. It came from a producer. Margot Lyons said to me about a show that ultimately struggled um, about Catch Me. She said, I'm worried what the event is. And I said, tell me about that. And she said, literally, I, what, what's the reason you go? What's the event? And I became fascinated by that word. So I now use that a lot. And internally, we talk about what will the event be? And the event is not the elevator speech. The event is the why go. Right? If your neighbor says to you, what should I see? Which I'm assuming anybody listening to this has a neighbor who asks them, what should they see? Then you say something, gentleman's guy. And then they say, the next thing they say is why. Every, every time they say why. What you say next is the event. It can be very simple. The event can be Hugh Jackman. The event can be the story of Houdini. The event can be Circus Meets Pippin. The event can be very clean and clear. And those are the easiest ones to sell. But the event can also be the emotional promise, which is because the event on Kinky Boots, we, uh, the, well, the other thing I want to say that we've learned is if you don't define your event, it will be defined for you. There's no question that it will. So, and usually in an, a direction you don't want. So Kinky Boots, I was terrified that the event was going to be the next Drag Queen musical. But that's what someone would say, what should I see? You say kinky boots, and they say why, and you'd say, it's got these guys, and these legs, and these boots. And I thought, that's what's going to happen. That's what the show is going to be. So we decided to make the event Chicago Reviews, and then we didn't get such great reviews in Chicago, but the score did, and Cindy did. So then we decided absolutely emphatically to make the event Cindy. And coming into New York, all the quotes were about Cindy, 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 because when someone said to you, what should I see, Kinky Boots, why? You can literally say, Cindy Lauper, and people go, oh, that's why. You know, unique point of sale is a phrase you hear a lot in advertising marketing. This is my version of that. But it's a little more emotional than just a unique thing. It's the emotional why. So our process is always to try and take any new show and go, okay, 
there's always any number of events. I mean, just by definition, on any show, you could name five or six reasons someone might go. Four of them may be really bad reasons, but they're reasons. You know, it's a revival. It's new. It's at a theater I like. It's you know directed by someone who's interesting. It's, you know, so there are often reasons. Your job is to figure out which one of them is the one that actually turns the key, or or even that you can deliver on. We've had shows where we knew what the event was, but we knew that. Telling someone that ahead of time was going to be nearly impossible. Um, an example of that is when Avenue Q went to Vegas. In Vegas, Vegas is supposed to be an event for it to be there, right? You're supposed to know the brand. People are in Vegas. There are statistics that say they're there for two and a half days. So, like, they 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 walk into town knowing what it is, and they say, "Oh yeah, share, share, share." I go to share. Avenue Q had no profile, even though it had won the Tony. I think it was amazing that they thought that it did, and the they here would be um, Vegas. Uh, oh, Steve Wynn. Sorry, I forgot Mr. Wynn's name. <laughs> Steve Wynn thought it won the Tony. Everyone will know, and we knew no one would know. So we actually ended up covering taxi cabs with orange fur because one of the things that we found out was in Vegas, a lot of your information comes from taxi drivers. So we thought if we could get the taxi drivers in to see the show. And if we could get a consumer in a backseat to ask a driver, what's that about? Like, what's that? What's the orange? Why the hell is your cab covered in orange fur? Then we could get the event to happen, which is, oh, it's so funny. It's so satiric. We don't see anything like it. And so in that case, the event literally, we knew that the event wasn't something that we could necessarily communicate up front. So sometimes you have to pick the event and then look strategically to see which of these events you can actually communicate early versus later. That you can, you know, obviously without great reviews from Chicago, we couldn't really communicate the event being reviews for Kinky Boots, so we could do Sydney. But then once we got them, then we made the, after Sydney, we made the event, um, you know, basically you're flying on air when you leave the theater. And then we made the event, Tony Awards, then we made the event, huge box office wraps. And now we've been going back for Cindy because we've got a newer audience, we've got a tourist audience that's coming in and we have to kind of redefine the event for them because, uh, because you always have to keep doing it if you're lucky enough to have a show run for a while. Any example of a show that you feel, oh, we, cra- we got the event, we cracked it, this is fantastic, the Orange Fur, maybe it's having a queue, and then the people just don't come or the yeah. show just doesn't work? Many. But uh, the obvious one, uh, Suzical. I thought that the ad campaign was great. David LaChapelle, funky, funny. And the show just, just, and now, you know, it's done everywhere. It's incredibly successful on the community theater circuit. You know, everyone has their theory why the show didn't work. I thought the campaign was great. You know, Liz McCann told me, you know, no hit show has a bad ad campaign. Meaning... Once the show succeeds, that artwork is inherently knighted, you know, as beautiful. And this, the opposite is also true. That when the show doesn't work, the campaign sucks. Whether it actually does or not, and I have many others that I love but didn't work. You know, and I, I'm certainly at fault for this uh, because I, when my shows have not worked in the past, one of the first things I think everyone says is, oh, it's the, we got to change the advertising. We got to change the marketing. How do you deal with people calling you and banging on conference tables, and now there are many people around those tables, saying it's the art when it, 
is it can the art really make the difference? Can the advertising make the difference? Or at the end of the day, is it that show and that theater and that experience that these people are sharing? Well, that's two questions. I'll take the first one. Honestly, I wish I could say that there's a way to deal with it, but mainly you need to know that people need to change it because they're emotionally in that place. And even though you know it may not really help, you actually usually end up changing it because it's just too difficult for people to see it any other way. It's one of the things they can control. It's almost that when someone says, well, whatever we're doing now certainly isn't working, and that's such a difficult thing to argue with, and it may not be, that may not be the reason, but that's a really hard one. So usually you end up changing. Uh, but on the other hand, um, can it change it? I have to say, a huge turnaround does not happen through advertising unless that advertising is advertising something factually new. So you can recast, you can put, you know, Annie Get Your Gun can pick up Reba or Fantasia into color purple, and you can have a whole new day. You know, and so you can put the two together. You can have advertising that meets with something really concrete and usually casting and get something good to happen. I've tried... Um, you know, really doing a huge pot of money to turn something around. Rocky would be an example. And I do know, and I didn't do it, that uh, some of the key people in Rocky had done the Mary Poppins campaign and consider that an example of a million dollars spent to turn around an audience perception. So you can sometimes change the way, if, if you know what the problem is, and the problem is something you think you can actually change. Um, but I will say that in the end, it is what, what advertising does is take a small amount of success and make it larger. What it doesn't do is invent success. And I, I know that sounds very clear. It's taken me a lot of years to, be able to say that to people, but if it isn't there, you can't make it. If it's there, you can try and enlarge it. So the, you know, the game usually is, well, who's loving it? Who's in the theater? It's groups. It's church groups. It's African Americans. No, it's kids. No, it's parents bringing kids. It's older people. It's you know every show finds a group that's really particularly loving it. Of course, there's always a pragmatic discussion as to are there enough of those people around. But advertising can help you enlarge that. I always feel like it's sort of like a drop of water and ripples going out. But the ripples have to already be there for us to amplify them. You don't invent them. You enlarge them. So you obviously work with an enormous number of producers, all sorts of different types. <laughs> <laughs> I won't ask you to name your favorite or least favorite, maybe when we shut it off. Uh, but what are the, some of the characteristics that you see in some of your more successful producers or the ones that you think are the real leaders of the industry and, and, and doing great things? Well, there are, one, I want to say something really specific here. There are two different kinds of successful producers. Everyone believes they are David Merrick. Everyone believes that they have just a feeling, right? But very few are. Very few are. So there are a few who actually can just feel it, and they're great leaders in that. But you can be just as successful knowing that you are not David Merrick, and... That doesn't mean you're not any good at it. It just means that you're not a savant, right? That you, you need to think about these things. And those people can be just as successful by using research, by really, you know, really exploring and considering. 
So there's two different types of people that we work with. Many, many people could be more successful if they just were self-accepting that maybe they're not David Barrett, but that doesn't make them bad producers. It makes them, it just only makes you a bad producer when you're unwilling to confront that fact. That if you, you really should have, you know, it, it's a rare skill that you're just sort of able to just feel your way in to what your show should be or what your advertising should be. But um, the best ones by far um, are playful. The best ones are trusting. Um, and that doesn't mean blind trusting. But um, want people who really are, people who delegate well, people who say, this is your part, this is my part. I mean, I'm fascinated by I have producers who literally will say to me, okay, that's my part. I'll go back and give you something to sell. But then it's my job to sell it well. And they know that. And be, But the poor ones mix it up all the time. And they think that it's my fault that the message isn't resonating. Uh, it's really hard to answer this question and not dive right into the specifics right now. But I'm not. I, mean, but I, I have a show right now on Broadway... Um, where the core, the whole show takes place in a place. And that place is named in the title. And the producers have decided the reason the show isn't working is that place. But everything about the show is that place. That's very difficult to decide that the core of your show isn't... You can't be who you're not. You can't sell... You can't trick people. You know, I mean, there's no faster way to shut a show down. You know, back to that emotional promise. You have to be, you have to deliver on the emotional promise. You can't just promise people big laughs and deliver chuckles. You'll be closed in three weeks. You know, and you can't, I did a show once, Dance of the Vampires, that we all thought was going to be Michael Crawford making his romantic return to Broadway. And we sold it that way. We had a letter from Michael Please come and see me, Jim Steinman, big in Germany, very symphonic music. And then we got there, and it was like a pie in the face. It was like Benny Hill, and we we were shocked. We had no idea that the show was going to be that, and it changed. And, uh, and the audiences were furious. They were furious. They came to see Michael Crawford sing a romantic ballad, and they got Michael Crawford as Benny Hill, and they were they felt that they had been duped. So, you know, it has to be something you're genuinely going to deliver on. And then you promise that. And, and the art of it is communicating that. So it feels less like something dry and more like something emotional. You mentioned the R word uh, in one of your last answers, research. What Obviously, this is something that's really, and it's very close to my heart, as you know, mm-hmm. uh, but something that's really come into its own over the last decade or two in other industries and seems to be just gaining steam here. Are you a pro-research person, anti-research? Where do you stand on that? I'm a huge pro-research person. Um, although I have to say, I wish I could tell you that I've seen it be a magic bullet ever. Like, beginning and middle. I mean, it, I, I, ha- I don't have the case study to say and here it is, people. If you do the research this way, um, and I really have, <laughs> I really want one, but I still believe nowadays, I, what I don't like so much is focus groups where the art gets tested, blah, blah, blah. You can pretty much tell people ahead of time what's going to happen. 
And, and it's fine that that goes on and that happens, and I know perhaps you've done some of that work. But what I really find much more interesting is sort of trying to test for the bigger ideas. That you know, what is it about my idea that what's your supposition before you know anything? What's your supposition knowing a little? And what is the little that changes the supposition? Literally, because you can basically take any show's idea and say it's about this, and then rate it on a scale, and then say, what if I add this and this? And you're trying to find the thing that flips it. Because again, in my emotional promise or my event, let's say there's five or six things, you really want to know what's the, what's the powerful one. What's the, all right, I thought it was going to be about Jersey. I thought it was going to be about uh, my leading lady's you know, difficulties. I thought that was going to be the hook that really flips it. Um, I'm going to give you an example. On the research on Color Purple, we did all this very unfilmic artwork. And then one, one campaign, which is the one you ended up seeing, with the girls patty caking in the field, which is literally lifted directly from the Spielberg movie. Right? I mean, that doesn't happen in the book. It doesn't happen in the musical. And, um, and we did the focus groups, and to that audience, which was primarily African-American, the movie is a classic. And for once, they didn't mind at all that it had been a movie, and they couldn't understand why we were moving away from the movie. The movie was what they wanted. It's what they came for on stage. And they were like... And so the batty cake went in. It went in right away. They didn't really want us to move it to some kind of fresh, new, folksy artwork. They wanted the movie. So that was amazing. And usually it's the opposite. I feel like most of the research that we do, people are telling you, yeah, I like the idea of that. It's based on that movie I liked. But they're rarely, nowadays, everybody wants to know, why should I not just stay home and watch this on TNT? I mean, it just comes up over and over again. So you have to tell people why this is unique. You know, why it's different this time, why it's going to be live. And how do you deal with the very few advertising agencies there are in this business? Because I don't think the business can support anymore. Uh, you obviously have a lot of competitors in the same conference room. How do you deal with those kind of conflicts when you have several shows that are all campaigning for the same Tony Award? Well, you don't have competitors in the same conference room. Obviously. Well, share, you know, not at the same time. At, at the same agency. Yes, exactly. Well, this is a conversation everyone loves to have with me. And I'm really straightforward about it. If we've had many years where we had all four in a category. But, and I'm a big believer in campaigning for a Tony, and I think our record speaks for itself, that you can, in fact, affect this. But the way that you affect it is not by, again, mounting some kind of superfluous campaign. You have to really know exactly who you are, and this time you have to add in the element of competitors. You have to know who they are and who you are. And I find it really a help when I know how I'm going to delineate each of these shows in their own way. Because when I don't know, then I don't know what's coming. I, I, and it, and I, I, that probably seems odd, but I, like often I can tell this comes from the days when we did like cable channels. And you, know, you would work on Comedy Central, and then you would work on Nickelodeon, and then you'd work on Cartoon Network. And you had to understand each brand really well. Like, what is the brand? What's it about? What's it, what is this? And so, you know, everyone, you know, heading into any Tony race, I know how I think they're, and, and you don't know until they all open, but you get a real sense that 
this is what this show is going to be. This is the art show. This is the crowd pleaser show. This is the British show. This is the... On any year, you have to really know what your show is in context to the others. And then you, you, and then you push that campaign out. So I find it really helpful to literally... I don't try and just do that. This is such a better thing, answer than what I gave you all. Everything I said here is absolutely true. But the shorter answer is I don't do the one. I take the whole pie and I split it up. And I, including shows we don't have. And I go, and I try and do a unique selling point and a strategy point on every show I think could be nominated. And then figure out what we need to be. And, and it changes. Uh, once began, the event was authenticity. When we were downtown, we wanted to be real, we wanted to be rent, we wanted to not seem like some made-for-Broadway experience, because we thought it was kind of the unmusical, right? So we do that, that works, Ben changes his mind unbelievably when we open on Broadway, and we become sort of the unmusical for Broadway. Well, when we head up to the Tony Awards, suddenly that's a negative, or I decided that I thought it was a negative, that we were this small show, and people gave us no chance. I mean, in these seven years of winning, there's quite a few years in there where the, the horse that we had in it was not considered at all, you know, starting with Avenue Q being the first one, just supposedly doesn't have a chance. So, you know, by understanding what everything's just, well, anyway, with, with once, we decided that actually we needed to suddenly become big. And so we did double trucks, and we knew that we'd have the numbers, and we knew, and the same thing, frankly, happened with Gentleman's Guide, that we knew that Gentleman's Guide was likely, we had done the math, and we knew they were likely to get the greatest nominations by nature of how many things were eligible and how many categories. It wasn't, I guess, it was they were available to win, to get nominated so many categories. So we knew that a logical strength of them was going to be the most nominated show. But that's only because we also did the math for every other show. And, you know, we knew where it could tie. And we, I mean, we, and we had that campaign literally ready to go. You know, I don't know if you remember, that campaign launched the night of the last show opened. That was unusual and kind of bold. Um, but I think it helped them win. And our last question, the question that I ask to everyone, imagine that uh, the fairy godmother, Drew's fairy godmother from Cinderella, which you advertised, comes down and says, Drew, I'm going to grant you one wish. With the wave of my magic wand, you can change anything you want about Broadway, but just one thing, anything that's been bugging you over the last couple decades, you can change just with one wave. What would that one thing be? I would instead of giving the emotional answer, which is everyone should be nicer. Um, the answer is, I would like to see opening nights used as a uh, marketing asset rather than a party, uh, and that will mean, for me, I'd love to see opening nights simulcast live across the country. And with sponsors like Sears to tell you that Cinderella, which almost happened on Cinderella, and everybody tried very hard to make it happen, and we had another company, much like Sears, was actually ready to do it and to sponsor Cinderella across the country and with stanchions and girls' clothing sections that said, we had a ticket to opening night. And it all makes perfect sense if you think it out that you could use your opening night. I don't think many people would see it, 
people would see the advertising for it, and then they would learn nationally that there was a show called Cinderella opening in New York. As it is, it takes us a year or more to get a national presence for a show. I think opening nights should be used as a national marketing platform to tell people that you've arrived. I love that idea. so uh, I'm sure a ton of producers are mad at me for stealing Drew away from working on their shows right now. So I'm going to let him get back to work. Thanks so much for being here, Drew. Uh, and thank all of you for listening to episode five, which is now in the books, so to speak. Uh, next up is episode six, and this is going to be a fun one. I'm super excited because we're going to sit down with the guy that Broadway loves to hate, Broadway gossip columnist for the New York Post, Michael Riedel. So subscribe now. Next episode will be up Monday at 11. See you then. Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Gapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.